Donald Trump gets more votes in Georgia. <laughs> Ohio voters don't get fooled. GOP presidential hopefuls prepare for the first debate. And wait, I'm burying the lead. The political junkie is back. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 399 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. I can't begin to tell you how thrilled I am with the response about restarting the podcast. In the latest Political Junkie newsletter, I listed all the problems that this podcast was facing, both financial and structural, and I shared my disappointment with what has happened to politics, disillusionment I didn't experience during Watergate or wars or impeachments or anything like that. I was at my wit's end. And yet my note was met with incredible enthusiasm and amazing generosity. Many of you are also distressed, but many said that the podcast was a much-needed voice. I appreciate that more than you know. I'm excited about the rebirth of The Political Junkie. And just as this episode was about to be published, along comes yet another indictment of Donald Trump, number four, charges of racketeering and conspiracy, all pertaining to his attempts to try to reverse the 2020 election results in Georgia an effort Trump has repeated nonstop since the election. There's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. The rigged, that was a rigged election. I don't need to point out that attempting to overturn an election is a serious charge, one that is more prevalent in an authoritarian government than here at home. And yet, who was surprised by Monday's news? Whose mind and vote was changed because of it? That may be the most remarkable thing of all. Not the fact that the former president of the United States has been indicted, let alone four times. It's that so many received the news with a shrug. And every additional indictment has not changed Trump's status as the overwhelming Republican frontrunner for 2024. This is what America has become. But seriously, is there not a single Republican member of Congress who has the courage and the principles to stand up and say that Trump is a danger to their party, let alone to democracy? I mean, this was Lindsey Graham on Fox. January the 6th, I was there. I saw it. He was impeached over it. The American people can decide whether they want him to be president or not. This should be decided at the ballot box, not in a bunch of liberal jurisdictions trying to put the man in jail. Actually, Lindsey Graham, I thought the voters had their say at the ballot box. He might remember that Trump refuses to accept that. And here was Ted Cruz just minutes before the indictment was announced on Monday. I'm pissed at these over and over and over again. If they're indictments tonight, it'll be the fourth indictment of Donald Trump. This is disgraceful. Our country is over 200 years old. We have never once indicted a former president or a candidate and a leading candidate for president. And this is Joe Biden and this is the Democrats weaponizing the justice system because they're afraid of the voters. This is disgraceful. It is wrong and it is an abuse of power by angry Democrats who have decided the rule of law doesn't matter to them anymore. It is disgraceful, Ted Cruz, but not in the way you see it. Biden's Justice Department is not responsible for these actions. It's the American people hearing the facts and voting to indict. If there was no case, there would be no indictment. 
You could rant all you want about a dishonest legal system. The only thing dishonest here is the person you worship at the altar. Of course, there are some Republicans who stand up to Trump, but they're all out of office. Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson of the presidential hopefuls are clearly anti-Trump. There's also Maryland's Larry Hogan, but he's no longer governor. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu clearly has no use for Donald Trump, but he's quitting next year. He'll be out of office, too. Anyway, here's what Jeff Duncan, the former lieutenant governor of Georgia, said about his fellow Republicans Monday on CNN. They know the right thing to do here. The right thing to do is to call Donald Trump out for lying, misleading us, and taking our Republican Party straight to the ditch. That's what's happened here. And until we all want to stand up and speak as loudly and clearly as we possibly can, that the Republican Party needs to use this as a pivot point to hit the reset button, to go to a GOP 2.0 that really gets us back to talking about the policies. If 2024 is about the issues, if it's just strictly about the issues and not about Donald Trump, we will beat the brakes off Joe Biden. He's got no, no positive record on the border, national security, public safety. These are issues that we can take him to the floor with. But if we just make it about Donald Trump, we're going to continue to be embarrassed, and our campaign speeches in the Republican Party are going to be from courthouse steps. But Duncan, like other Republicans who are opposed to Trump, are not in office and don't have to fear the wrath of Donald. With just over a week to go before the first debate of Republican presidential contenders, we're still not sure who'll make the cut. It seems pretty clear that eight candidates have qualified to be on stage in Milwaukee on the 23rd. Trump, Christie, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Doug Burgum, and Mike Pence. It's a guessing game as to whether Trump will appear. He has a huge polling lead over all his competitors, including DeSantis, who earlier in the year was thought to be the one candidate who would rise and give Trump a fight for his money. Now every headline involving the Florida governor seems to be about shedding staff members and cutting costs, while every headline that screams Trump hey, how about that latest indictment, drives up his lead. That's why he says he's unlikely to appear on the 23rd. Why lower himself to show up with lesser-known candidates, none of whom are within 30 points of the ex-pres? Clearly, he loves the attention and focus about what his debate plans are, and he's having a great time with the guessing game. We're so far above everybody else in the polls. They're all saying, is he going to go into the debate? And I say, I don't know. If you're leading by 50 and 60 and 70 points, do you do that or not? I don't know. Should I? Okay, you ready? Poll. We take a free poll. Should I do the debate? (laughs) Well, maybe we'll do something else. You know, see, some people say yes, but they hate to say it because it doesn't make sense to do it if you're leading by so much. Of course, if he's hit with another indictment in the next week or so, his numbers will likely go up even more. But you never know what's going to happen at a debate, as we heard in the immortal words of Rick Perry. Oops. We still have a ways to go before the January 15th Iowa caucuses, and early polls are not always conclusive. But it's hard to think of a time in the past where someone five months out had the lead like Trump does now and failed to win. A most unusual occurrence took place last month on Capitol Hill when Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, surrounded by fellow Republicans in the leadership, was holding a press conference about the progress of some bipartisan measure. 
In the middle of it all, he froze in mid-sentence. After finishing the NDA uh, this week, it's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of After 19 painfully long seconds of silence, Senators Joni Ernst and John Barrasso approached a still silent McConnell and walked him away from the microphones. Later in the day, McConnell appeared fine, talking to and smiling with reporters and dismissing questions about his health. But it's worth noting that the Kentucky Republican, who is 81, suffered a concussion last March after falling during a D.C. fundraising event and subsequently missed nearly six weeks of Senate business. Since March, he fell twice more. His office offered no explanations or prognoses. On the other side of the aisle, Dianne Feinstein of California returned to work in May after missing two months for a bout of shingles. Feinstein is the Senate's oldest member at 90, but since she returned has looked older, seemingly disoriented at times, as she is led around in a wheelchair by her aides, who apparently tell her what she needs to do and how to vote. It funds priorities submitted. Yeah, just say aye. Okay, just aye. Aye. Thank you. Both senators have heard calls that they resign, but things aren't that simple. McConnell is the longest-serving Senate GOP leader in history and has managed to keep ideological differences from splitting up his party. Feinstein's presence on the Senate Judiciary Committee is imperative if the Democrats are to advance the nominations of President Biden's judges. When she was away, the committee was evenly divided and Democrats couldn't accomplish anything. By all accounts, she returned to the Senate well before she was physically ready. But the fact is, Democrats desperately need her vote. And oh, did I mention Senator John Fetterman? The Pennsylvania Democrats suffered a stroke last year, just days before he won the nomination, and several months ago excused himself to receive treatment for depression. He missed more than six weeks. Here he was in June, introducing Biden at a Philadelphia event following a collapse of a major highway. And now I'm standing next to the president again, next to a, a collapsed bridge here. And he is here to commit to work with the, the governor and the, the, the delegation to make sure that we get this fixed quick, fast as well, too. This is a president that is committed to infrastructure. Yeah, and then on top of that, uh, the, the jewel uh, kind of a uh, uh, law of the inflation. Uh, bill that is going to make sure that there's going to be bridges. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times and covers the Senate and its senators better than anyone. Carl, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'd like to start with Senator McConnell, mostly because questions have been raised not only about his health, but his leadership and whether his standing has been affected by July's incident. What have you observed? Well, I, he's obviously slowed down after after the fall. Uh, so, 
you know, we had been keeping an eye on his health pretty closely to see how he was doing. And then that episode at the mics was pretty shocking, honestly. I mean, everyone who was there saw it and was alarmed by it. I mean, it's unusual for someone to in that public position to have that, that kind of frozen moment. So, I mean, his, I don't think that even McConnell's closest allies would argue against the idea that he's been slowed down by these uh, health complications. He speaks less in their private luncheons. He has ceded some of the authority uh, on the floor to John Thune, the uh, South Dakota senator who's number two, but uh, it's Mitch McConnell, uh, one of his very close advisors, uh, referring to Senator McConnell's love of baseball, said, boy, this guy's a tough out. He is not uh, going anywhere. So he appeared at a big political event in Kentucky recently, uh, was heckled, but that's sort of the tradition at that event. And he said, this would not be my last one. So I think right now, Mitch McConnell doesn't plan on going anywhere, but uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. And his condition has started this very, very quiet in the background jockeying uh, for the, the succession. So we'll see how that plays out when the Senate comes back in September. You mentioned that uh, John Thune has taken up some of the duties of, of the leadership. You've also pointed out in your articles that during the uh, recent debt ceiling talks, McConnell basically ceded his role to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, right? Right, right. He did. You know, McConnell has, has negotiated a lot of these debt limit deals over the years. Now, it wasn't without justification. McCarthy's the one who had the majority. And, you know, he was the one who had to make the deal with President Biden. But still, for McConnell to step into the background on an issue where he's dominated uh, in the past was, you know, it was telling. And the deal ended up coming back in a way that Senate Republicans really didn't like. So they, they, they lost something there. So, yeah, that, that was another indicator that Senator McConnell, you know, just not quite taking the, the spotlight in the way he has in the past. We know about his concussion from last March, but, but I don't remember he reading anything about subsequent falls until recently. Has, has his office been forthcoming? Well, you know... I would, obviously, they weren't going to uh, make those public unless they had to. I have found, Ken, I'm sure you've experienced this too, over the years, probably one of the most zealously guarded secrets of politicians is their health. They just are not forthcoming about it at all. And it's, it's, it's a bipartisan thing. This is they don't want to show any weakness. They don't want people to know that they may be uh, suffering, you know, because any sign of weakness it, it promotes a challenge. So, yeah, they haven't given us a lot of information. And also, after the episode at the microphones, they would not even say whether or not he had seen a doctor. Now, some of the doctors we talked to said, well, he should have immediately gone to an emergency room and been checked out. And we don't we don't really know what happened. But it's very possible that he has seen a doctor, but we just don't know for sure. And, you know, what the extent of any uh, testing was. And, you know, he could have easily seen the attending physician at the Capitol on that day. But he did, as you said, you know, he came back out and, and he talked and he actually answered the questions more extensively than he does at some of these things. You know, he wanted to show that he was he was OK. But 
they obviously know they needed to to show some uh, strength there. But, uh, you know, the Senate is has got a lot of, as you were referring to, uh, older members. And as they stick around, these things become more prevalent. You have to be doing something right if you're the longest serving Senate leader in history. And, and, and I hope you don't mind that I'm springing this on you. But yeah. whose record did he surpass? Mike Mansfield. That's right. Okay. Well, you know, you win a political junkie T-shirt. That's let the record well, show. Well, I, I will say, and he did surpass that. But I will say this: it's a bit of an asterisk. Mike Mansfield was the majority leader the entire time, and McConnell, of course, has gone in and out. But he he's been there the longest. It was a really a, a mark that he really wanted to set. It started uh, at the beginning of this year, as soon as he, he, uh, the new Congress began, he became that, that person. But, you know, it's a, it's a question mark how long he's going to stay or, you know, will he finish his term, which is in, uh, 2026. Democrats obviously best know him as I would guess, as the person who ended Merrick Garland's hopes to serve on the Supreme court. But as you mentioned, you know, there are simmering rivalries in the Republican conference that McConnell, I would assume, has helped smooth over that may have not been made public. Do you think those rivalries get more intense now that Mitch is seen as weakened? Uh, I think that the interesting thing about that is that there was any opposition to him at all uh, remaining as leader. And, and, and there were there were a few people who came out and, you know, Rick Scott ran against him. He really had no chance. I don't but, see. But, yeah, but that was an unusual challenge, right? Cause... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he had lost the, you know, Rick Scott ran the uh, Senate Republican operation and they didn't win the majority. And then he decided he wanted to be the, the leader. That was never going to work. I think the more I don't see the challenge to McConnell coming from uh, that group of people. They just don't have the votes there. But I do think there's going to be increasing discussion about who would take over. Now, John Thune is the number two. John Barrasso, who you mentioned, is the number three. But John Cornyn, you know, they're known as the three Johns in the Senate. He, from Texas, he also, uh, I think, remains interested in being in position to succeed Senator McConnell. Of course, none of those people are going to talk publicly about, you know, Senator McConnell has to go, any sort of thing like that. They'll just be positioning themselves in case the opportunity arises. Plus the fact that on paper, I think it's fair to say that Republicans are in a really good position to regain control of the Senate next year's elections. It seems to be much more, many more vulnerable Democratic seats than Republican seats. And and I know November 2024 is a long way off, but, uh, and was it Cornyn, the former whip, but he's no longer, do you remember? Yes, he was the number two, and he was also the uh, head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee at one point. Uh, John Cornyn has a lot of respect among Republicans. And one thing John Cornyn is very good at is raising money out of Texas. And as you know, that's, you know, a prerequisite for being a leader. You need to be able uh, to raise the money. And I think you're right. I mean, the, the Republicans have a good chance to take the majority after coming up short the last two election cycles. Uh, John Tester in Montana, uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, if he uh, Sherrod Brown in in Ohio, yes, if he runs, those are they're running in states that Trump carried, and you know it's going to be tough. But I, you know, the the Democrats have shown a capability to win those seats. Those are three really pretty 
talented politicians. So, you know, it's going to be a real dogfight as usual. And as lo- a lot, of course, has to depend on the top of the ticket. You know, I mean, are you voting against Biden? Are you get voting against Trump? So that has yeah, a lot to do Yeah, and it's interesting, too. You know, Senator McConnell has one of the worst relationships with Trump after they did work very closely together on judicial confirmations. But, you know, Trump has been calling for him to retire since this happened. So how that would all would work, I, I really don't know. There's also a closely watched governor's race in Kentucky this fall. Uh, the Republican nominee there is McConnell's former legal counsel. Yeah, so- he's a protege of uh, Senator McConnell. And I think, you know, they're watching that very closely, too, to see how that how that plays out. Okay, let me turn to Dianne Feinstein. Uh, you know, as as upsetting as it was to watch McConnell's freeze, Feinstein seems to be in far worse shape, doesn't she? I mean, she's older and had serious medical conditions. Uh, she was recently at the hospital again for a fall. Uh, seems to have not been badly injured in that. You know, and it, we all know, and it's just an unfortunate thing to say, falls among older Americans and older people are things that really. Uh, can lead to a rapid deterioration in health. So she, though, seems to be determined to serve out her term. She has announced that she won't be on the ballot, obviously, next November, and there's a big Democratic fight to succeed her. But at the moment, uh, she seems content to stay. You know, there's some other ancillary battles going on with her over her the late husband's Money, you know, it's all sort of un- unfortunate, really. Uh, Diane Feinstein had a great career, and uh, there's a lot of people who aren't going to remember much of her career except for these last few years, and it, it's kind of unfortunate. It is unfortunate. You think of the things she's been, you know, she's been a trailblazer in so many ways. She was on the short list for Walter Mondale's VP. I mean, she's been around since 92. Yeah, yeah. A very important figure in Democratic politics and in the Senate, where she took on the CIA over torture. Uh, you know, she's and, got, you know, the author of the assault weapons ban. She has quite a legacy, really. But uh, right now, the focus is on her health. You know, I remember, of course, the Democrats and the liberals who wanted Ruth Bader Ginsburg to resign early uh, for this reason or that reason. And I know many Democrats are pressuring Feinstein to resign, but, and, you know, of course, California Governor Gavin Newsom would name a successor, but would you please explain to everybody why that is not in the Democrats' best interest? Well, there's a lot going on in that race to succeed her, and obviously, given Democratic politics, she would, there there will be a Democrat take that seat, but there's infighting, you know, uh, amongst who's going to run, and there are uh, people who think that they would not be served very well. Uh, Adam Schiff would being one, if who really I think has a, a strong chance to win that seat if uh, if he can. But if there was a replacement, as you know, uh, if she resigned now, uh, that person might have a leg up. And so I think there's a lot of attention going on in the politics of California about the timing of when uh, Senator Feinstein leaves. Right. And Governor Newsom had said that he would appoint a black woman, I think he said, a black woman if there's a vacancy. And of course, a black woman, Congresswoman Barbara Lee is among those. And of course, if he chooses her in the event of a vacancy, that would just, you know, upset the apple cart for the race. But what I was talking about is that Republicans show no indication that they would allow the Democrats to name a replacement for her on the Judiciary Committee. 
Well, you know, I, I have written about this, Ken, actually, and I think that that is a mistaken impression. I think that if she did leave, that they would probably end up allowing that because it would be such a horrible precedent for them. Unlike Merrick Garland? <laughs> well, but they're going to be in the same position, right? Say with Senator McConnell or if someone had to resign. Uh, we interviewed a lot of senators about that. And even though it's not a sure thing, I, I, the general assumption was that they would be able to replace her on that committee. It would set a really dangerous precedent if they if they did not. But you saw what Kentucky Republicans did in the legislature. They took away the power of the Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, to name a replacement. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, that was Senator McConnell's doing. You know, that guy is always, the name of his uh, memoir is The Long Game, and he's always playing the long game. That is for sure. Okay, here's a political geek moment. Um, I was about to say this whole thing reminds me of Carl Munt. <laughs> do, I, do we want to talk about this, or is that too insane? Yeah, that's probably... <laughs> no, but this is but this <laughs> something. In 1969, the South Dakota senator suffered a stroke right. and never returned to the Senate in 1970 until his term was up in 72. That's three years he was out, and I guess because Democrats had a big, a big lead advantage in the Senate, nobody right. seemed to go crazy over it, but three years... Yeah, there are- there are instances in the Senate of very long absences, and we've had some recently with Tim Johnson from South Dakota and uh, Mark Kirk of Illinois. And, you know, I, um, um, it's one of those things where people get elected for six years and they have that right to stay there and the voters make the decision. And it's hard to... Uh, it's hard to persuade people to leave. I mean, they, they generally are going to make that decision on their own. You mentioned Tim Johnson and you mentioned Mark Kirk. And I think back then, Tim Johnson suffered a brain hemorrhage, I guess, shortly Correct. after the Democrats won the Senate. But everybody back then seemed to talk about their health and recovery rather than, you know, speculate what it means politically. Now it seems, you know, with McConnell and Feinstein and Fetterman, everything seems to be about it seems to be about politics and what it means in the big picture, I guess. I think the narrow majority, the narrow majority makes that. But is there more political place in the universe than the United States Senate? I don't, you know, it's it's all politics all the time. But I do, I, it's the majority that, that, you know, for the last several cycles, we've had this extremely uh, narrow majority since Obama in was elected in 2009, then they had the 60 uh, seats for a while. But, you know, with every seat counting, uh, it makes a difference, the health of these people and the politics. Now you have also a little bit of a, a situation where Tim Scott, who is running for uh, president, is absent from the Senate while he's out campaigning. And that, that's made a difference on some, on some votes, too. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. His stuff, as I always say, is a must-read, and it's always great having you on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy to do it. Something is not right with me. Something is not right with me. Something is not right with me. How was I supposed to know? Something is not right with me. Something is not right with me. Something is not right with me. Trying not to let it show. And that's it for this week's episode. It does feel good to have the political junkie back. Thanks for sticking around. 
Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Please keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Passion of the people was sleeping late into the evening. Reach behind, they could hardly find a spine. Passion of the people was sleeping late into the evening. Reach behind, they could hardly find a spine. You said that you like a crime.